You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've tuned in. On Monday, uh, the literary world lost a real giant. Tony Morrison, the author of celebrated works including Song of Solomon, Beloved, and The Bluest Eye, died in the Bronx at the age of 88. Morrison wasn't just a black female author. In so many ways, she was the black female author in this country. She was the pattern marker for everyone else. And she didn't really stop there. It would be easy to argue that Morrison was the American writer of the late 20th century, the writer, a force that shaped so much of the literary landscape around her with boldness and her imaginative approach to raw narrative truth-telling. She was unafraid to explore any aspect of African-American life. And she was better than anyone else at confronting the spectrum of experiences and emotions that define the black existence here in America. Pain, resilience, empowerment, healing, love, fear, and hate. Any range of emotions she could illuminate in part of, as part of the American experience. And her writing, the way she put words together to conjure images, to convey emotion, or endow characters with power or powerlessness, was her greatest and most impressive skill. In a little bit, we're going to be joined by a professor from the University of Michigan to talk about the work and the legacy of Toni Morrison, to talk about the way her work now influences the rest of the literary world, as well as American culture here in the United States. But before we get to that, I'd love to hear from you. What did you think of Toni Morrison's passing this week? What do you think about her work? What does her work mean to you? If you're an African-American woman in particular, we'd love to hear how you related to Toni Morrison, what she meant to you and your sense of what it means to be an African-American in this country. As an African-American man and a writer, I can easily say that there are very few people who had more influence over my work and the way that I think about writing than Toni Morrison. In particular, that wonderful use of allegory that she could indulge in the middle of stories, fantastical kinds of passages, uh, was so, so, uh, uh, so influential in, in the way that I thought about how to put stories and words together. So give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. Tell us what you thought of Toni Morrison. Tell us what you thought of her stories. Which of the books that she wrote stands out the most to you? You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will try to work you into the conversation. And here to help us flesh out that legacy of Toni Morrison is Michael Awkward. He is the Gail Jones Professor of Afro-American Literature and Culture at the University of Michigan. Michael Awkward, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. So uh, let's start with uh, the work that really catapults uh, Morrison 
to uh, popularity and I think is one of the most incisive uh, uh, sort of looks at the way she approached her work, The Bluest Eye, um, which is, you say, uh, the inspiration for you wanting to become uh, an English professor. Um, What is it about that book that defines Toni Morrison and her approach, not just to literature and writing, but to the truth-telling of the African-American experience? And and how does that resonate today? Um, I think that part of what um, the book does um, is to give us a way of thinking about the consequences of pain for little black girls especially, but black people more generally surviving in a post um, slave society and to ask us to think about the ways in which the images that were so prevalent uh, in the media uh, at that particular moment in time and perhaps still uh, the images that suggested that the only people of value in American society were white and in the case of little girls were white and blue-eyed and blonde-haired like Shirley Temple. The suggestion of the consequences of those sorts of perverse insistences upon the culture on uh, the self-image of black girls and black boys and black people more generally. Um, And I think that there was both the combination of the kind of dogged insistence on examining the nature of the pain that that these little black girls were experiencing, but also the beauty of the language. Mm -hmm. The insistence on the part of Morrison of suggesting that pain could not only be dealt with and confronted and needed to be dealt with and confronted, but it could be dealt with and confronted in a way that suggested um, that it was as susceptible to literary uh, discourse as the lives of any people in uh, the Western world and any people in on Earth. And I think it was that sort of the combination of both the, the sort of intense exploration of the intensity of pain, but also it being offered to us in the, in the, 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 the vessel of this beautiful lyrical um, expressive language, but also the, 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 the imagination mm-hmm. uh, that Morrison brought to bear, her willingness to let her imagination go and play and explore and to think about certain kinds of issues and images um, that we suspect that all, especially creative people, are able to render, but that hadn't been rendered in the consequence of black American literature um, as successfully, I suspect, especially black American women's literature up to that point. Uh, that juxtaposition of really harrowing experiences, frightening experiences uh, that that define a large part of the African-American condition and uh, uh, beauty really plays out in, in this one part of the bluest eye that I don't think I can ever get out of my mind. Uh, uh, the, the main character, uh, Pecola Breedlove, is uh, raped and impregnated by her, her father, um, 
and uh, two of her foster sisters mm-hmm. um, decide that the way that they can take care of her, the way that they can ensure that she lives and that the baby lives is by planting flowers yeah. um, out, outside their house. And of course, in the, in the novel, the flowers die, uh, as does the baby. Uh, mm-hmm. It's such a powerful way to use imagery to convey, uh, again, that juxtaposition, that, that horror so often appears alongside beauty. Yeah, I, and I think that, that another thing that, that Morrison is attempting to do is to suggest the efforts on the part of these little girls and maybe black people more generally to figure out how to intervene in situations that they have no power over. Um, and so this, the, this sort of notion that you can conjure um, something by planting seeds, something that, uh, a ritual that um, I suspect we all in some way or shape or form involve ourselves in, is utterly important and, and, and interesting. And then think about the, the, the connections between the planting of the seeds and then the father's planting of his, his own perverse seed and his daughter. Um, uh, can I just uh, tell a, a, a personal story here sure. about yeah. this? Absolutely. Issue. Yeah. Um, in, I think it was 1993 when Toni Morrison won the Pulitzer Prize, um, I was ecstatic in ways that it's very hard to explain, <laughs> except for the fact that her work has been so influential and important to me. And um, for a while, I was a, a postdoc at Princeton where she uh, taught, and I got to know her not well, but a little bit. And I tried to figure out what to do for her to mark this occasion. So I sent her some flowers. Hmm. And for the 25 years afterwards, I sort of have kicked myself because I realized that the kinds of flowers that I should have sent, I don't remember what they were, I'll just say they were lilies, but the kinds of flowers that I should have sent her were marigolds Hmm. because she talks about in the beginning of... Uh, the bluest eye, the fact that there were no marigolds in in the spring of 1941. And and so there was this sort of attempt on my part to to continue this metaphor that you're talking about, the planting of the flowers and the, the existence and the ways in which nature was used. But I wasn't smart enough at that point <laughs> to figure out the kinds of flowers that I should have sent to It her. was the right gesture. It though. was a good gesture, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, that... That w- that way of using imagery um, <clears throat> and, and imagination and fantasy even uh, to try to make those points, I, I think, grows uh, across her work. Uh, the, the the later novels, I think, take it sometimes to to, to places that it was hard to follow, uh, even as a as a reader sometimes. Um, but but talk about the power she was able to leverage. Um, with that kind of fantasy to get people, I think, to to understand uh, the black experience better or maybe to empathize with it. I mean, uh, clearly, um, I, th- I think her goal was to 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 bridge that gap uh, sometimes between um, the African American community that that could could understand these things maybe a little more easily 
uh, and and the greater sort of American population. Yeah, I, I suspect that there were there were certainly segments of the African American community that could understand uh, the metaphors better. But I, I suspect that the, the that the the issue that comes or the text that comes most immediately to mind with regard to that is Song of Solomon which, um, from reading a lot of responses uh, written by a lot of readers uh, to her work over the course of the last three or four days or so, seems to have been, besides Beloved, perhaps her, her reader's favorite novel. Mm-hmm. And part of what she does in that particular, sto- that particular novel is to use a myth that was prevalent in uh, black American culture in the in the 19th century, the sort of myth of the flying African. Yes. Um, and what she does is to ask us to think about the ways in which that myth can be and was, at least in terms of uh, the, the dead family, intricately interwoven into the story of the lives of that that group of people and the people in the town from which the, the dead family emerge. And so the, the, this sort of notion of the flying African or, or the people who could fly is really central to that book. And we in American society, we in the West more generally, have been asked to, in, in part uh, through religion and other things, think about the ways in which the mythic works, the ways in which uh, certain kinds of unimaginable possibilities exist for people. The, 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 the um, story, for example, that's in the Bible of Jesus uh, walking across the water is mm-hmm. the one that I can think of most mm-hmm. prevalently. But part of what she does so expertly, because she's a, a writer who wants us to think about the pain that slavery and oppression have wrought on black people. She wants to give us the myth, and she does, and it's uplifting and wonderfully enabling in a kind of way, but at the same time, she wants us to understand the cost of slavery for people. So one of the things that she does so wonderfully in, in, in Song of Solomon is to give us the myth, but then to ask us to think about the consequences for the family of the first uh, of Solomon, uh, the consequences for the family of having been left behind um, by the person who was in, enabled uh, to fly. And so there's this refrain in the novel that says something to the effect, and I won't get this precise. Um, he could fly, but who'd he leave behind? And the the story is as much about the capacity to fly and getting back into and getting in touch with that particular myth, that sort of uplifting myth that gives black people a way of thinking about their power in the world, but also to think about the pain of desertion for the 21 kids and his wife, Rina, who he leaves behind and who were still suffering as a consequence of his desertion of them. And it's that kind of juxtaposition, both of the empowering myth that could make people feel good um, about being black and, and to know that they have a kind of cultural power that the United States and the West more generally has denied them, but on the other hand, to ask us to think about the nature of the pain. Uh, there's something that she says 
in, uh, in a 2015 um, essay entitled No Place for Self-Pity, No Room for Fear that mm-hmm. was published in The Nation. She says, I know the world is bruised and bleeding, and though it is important not to ignore the pain, it is also critical to refuse to succumb to its malevolence. And it's that power, the power to, in beautiful language, in metaphorically rich um, formulations, to give us a sense of the pain, but the efforts on the part of the people that she deals with to try to succumb or deal with or to accommodate themselves to that pain that I think marks the power of her work um, and the importance of her contributions to American literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's take a few calls here. Uh, Liz in Detroit. Welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. I was just calling to say we always hear about Beloved, Song of Solomon, The Bluest Eyes. One of the things in the stories that I really was moved with was Sula. Mm-hmm. It was about relationships and 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 friendships and just life as a young woman. And I read it twice, once as a young woman, maybe about late teens, and then again as an adult. So I just wanted to say, you know, we hear about Beloved and we hear about Song of Solomon and The Bluest Eyes. But that was one that really touched me. I carry with me all the time. Liz, yeah. that's 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 wonderful to to hear. Uh, I mean, I I think it's hard to it's hard to choose one uh, from among the novels that she wrote. Uh, if if you were a fan, um, to to sort of define <clears throat> to define the work. But I love that uh, that you related to that novel, which, as you point out, is not as acclaimed as some of the others. Um, uh, Michael, before I let you go, um, what what would you say is Morrison's primary legacy uh, that she leaves behind? Uh, clearly, it is the work that she did as a novelist um, and the, the insistence on the part of Toni Morrison that black people have created a culture that is beautiful and rich and profoundly important to American society. But there are certain sorts of challenges for black people and also challenges for Americans in terms of thinking about and engaging and exploring and the will and having the willingness to explore the consequences both of that richness but also of the pain. I think that what she has asked us to do and forced us to do and allowed us to do at a moment when there are famous actors who are saying that racism no longer exists, or when we see a, a variety of people in the national scene insisting that black pain is not significant and important, and also at a moment when black people are seem to be at a kind of crossroads in terms of thinking about how to deal with and whether or not to deal with uh, the consequences of that pain. I think that what she insists that she that we do is to confront the pain and that if we confront the pain if we have the courage and the power and the will to confront the pain we will also encounter the beauty and i think that that's what her work and her legacy is um for american society in all sorts of ways and uh she is easily my favorite writer, but she is also, more importantly than that, a writer who has left 
a legacy of rich, engaged work that is that uh, is um, monumental in ways that she was, I think, as a person too. Yeah. So, well, work of uh, incredible consequence. Yep. Uh, Michael Awkward, Gail Jones, professor of Afro-American literature and culture at the University of Michigan. It was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thank you very much, Steve. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the death this week of Pulitzer Prize-winning author Toni Morrison at age 88. And now we want to talk about a piece of Morrison's story that takes place right here in the city of Detroit. Although she was widely known as a novelist, she added another title later on in her career, opera librettist. Her opera, Margaret Garner, told the story of a runaway slave. It was loosely based on the real-life events she wrote about in her novel, Beloved. That opera debuted at the Detroit Opera House in 2005. Here's a clip of the Michigan Opera Theater rehearsing Margaret Garner in Detroit during that production. Joining us now are two people who were involved and took part in the production when that opera debuted. David Osborne is director of production at the Michigan Opera Theater. David, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. Thank you for inviting us. And Suzanne Acton is assistant music director and chorus master for the Michigan Opera Theater. Suzanne, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah. So let's start with how how did Detroit end up being the place that this opera premiered? Why did that happen? Um, oh, I'll, I'll take uh, that first, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, it, this goes back. Uh, uh, Toni Morrison and, and Richard Danielpour, the, the composer, um, knew each other and had uh, discussed putting this work together in, in the late 90s in New York. <clears throat> and um, and uh, Richard had actually been to an opera with Denise Graves starring in it and, and thought that Denise would be the perfect... Uh, uh, voice to uh, tell the story. So um, uh, Denise, um, in 1999, was singing um, uh, with us in a production of Verter, uh, co-starring with Andrea Bocelli. And at that time, uh, Denise brought the project to David DiCare's attention. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it, it was good timing. I mean, it, it, we were looking for an operative uh, premiere to commission and premiere, and this uh, touched a lot of uh, of interest that David had in, in, in that pursuit. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, David DiChiara wanted to bring, for the first commission to the Opera House, an, a piece that would pay tribute and reflect the experiences of the African-American community. And, you know, he was a champion of diversity on the stage, gave, you know, many opportunities to African-American singers, and um, so this was just the perfect vehicle for him. Yeah, yeah. Um, you both had a chance to meet Morrison, uh, but only briefly, I guess, uh, when, when uh, this was taking place. What were your impressions of her from those encounters, Suzanne? Well, a graceful lady. She was, uh, you know, um, an artist 
um, I was just struck by how, it, it, you know, she she did a press conference and it was very powerful how she delivered, talked about the transformation from beloved into this opera and that she was very humbled by the opportunity. And I just, you know, was just very impressed. Yeah. David? I did not have a lot of personal interaction uh, with Ms. Morrison, uh, but uh, I, I would say when she joined the production process, we were in the, uh, the final phases of putting uh, the production together in the Opera House uh, in the Tech Week, and, and when she came in, uh, it, it, it changed uh, the feeling in the room. I mean, everybody, it, she was just a person of such stature um, you know, it, I was reminded at the time when Rosa Parks had come to a performance of Aida at, at the Masonic Temple, and it was a moment that in my life compared to that one. It was just, it was, it was very special. She just had a resonance to her that was uh, very unusual and, yeah. and special. So, so talk about what this production looked uh. And sounded like on stage. Of course, Beloved would later go on to become a movie uh, that was uh, popular but somewhat controversial in the way that I think it tried to translate pretty complicated themes from text to to, to visual. I, I, I imagine that the the level of difficulty becomes even higher, perhaps, when you're talking about translation from this text to to stage. Suzanne, why don't you talk about the text part? I mean, it, you. She had to teach the text and, and was very involved in, uh, in that sort of shift from the novel. Right. Um, the, the thing is, is that I think she even expressed that um, the, the novelist is, manipulates the reader. But in this case, it's the music. Hmm. So she had to be very careful how she selected the music and, and the integrity of what she wanted to, to convey to the listener and make the, the words musical, because they were going to be set to music. And, of course, opera is a medium that, that touches on subjects that the spoken word, you know, is, is not as, as meaningful as when you put the, the feeling behind into the music. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I, I will say about teaching this, it was an emotional experience for me as well as for all the choristers. She had constructed the opera so that we had a separate black and white chorus. Mm-hmm. And we actually separated them because of costumes and, you know, they were in different scenes. So it was easy for us to put them in different rooms. Now, this is the first time our chorus is very close. Mm-hmm. And um, it's the first time that they were actually separated. And it we was, had a segregated chorus. Yeah. So we have our segregated chorus. And, and for them, it was, you know, it was a journey that they had no idea where they were going. And I had some of our, our African-American singers tell me that this is the first time through this text, through this whole journey of this opera, that they realized, and when they were growing up, slavery was never discussed. It was something that was, um, they felt sort of ashamed. How did they, how did those people, you know, how did, how did they do that? And now they, they realized through this whole journey at the end, everyone was crying, mm. both the white and the black choruses. And the thing is, is they realized they were no longer the victims, but the victors. And then here they are on stage. Here they are on stage um, playing 
slaves, mm. but they are no longer slaves. They are free. And so that whole journey left everyone. It, it's, it's really intensely personal, I think. So, mm. and uh, it's wow. a, it's a, that's an incredible story, by the way, this idea of these separate choruses, which, you know, is a, is a, a narrative device, I suppose, in the in the opera, but right. then has right. its own effect on on the people who are who are part of it. It had a real life effect on all of us, yeah. and, it, and it sort of um, uh, underscored the whole journey that that the opera takes everyone through. Uh, it, I mean, it's a very emotional work. Obviously, the story is, and I think when when uh, when Toni Morrison was when we all knew that she was the librettist, it raised the bar for everybody in the yeah. production. Hmm. I mean, you had no option other than to uh, deliver <laughs> excellence, right? right. You, you had to, right? So, um, so that's and, and, and so whether it was a design element or um, a choreography moment, move or or uh, or what, we really had to. Uh, and, and, and each aspect of the opera was. Just um, brimming with emotion the, the whole time, so it was it was, it was a it's a strenuous journey, and it's a long one too. By the way, it's a, it, it takes years to put together uh, to you know commission a work and get it from its its sort of initial parts yeah. uh, to f- full production. Sure, sure. Uh, let's go back to the phones here. Bear in Detroit. Bear, welcome to the show. Hey, Stephen. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, sorry, my comment's not about the opera. It's okay. about Tony in general, but I just wanted to say, you know, uh, I'm a white man who has um, African-American nieces, and um, their African-American parent is not around. And as they grew up, they, you know, they didn't have a lot of, uh, you know, good uh, African-American role models. And so uh, when they started getting their teen years, it was one of the greatest joys of my life to be able to give them uh, the bluest eye for Christmas. And, and even though, you know, Tony is, is gone, you know, her literature stands and, and they will have that role model for, mm. you know, the rest of their lives. And so um, I just want to thank you for, for talking about her today and, um, you know, put the, put the vibes out there. Thank so, Tony for, for being that role model for all of our young uh, black women out there. So thank you. So Bear, t- talk to me about how you, how you chose the bluest eye as as the the vehicle for uh, for giving this message to your nieces. Sure, yeah, um, you know, I think uh, I had been introduced to Beloved through high school um, and and became more interested in in you know Tony's work and um, just this idea, you know, especially with Trump being elected and and furthering these these yeah you know separations between us and and then this idea that. Um, wanting my nieces to be able to know that black is beautiful and that there's nothing wrong with them, um, and and that you know that that's kind of the sentiment in the bluest the bluest eye. You know that um, you you may feel uh, alone or or you know pushed away by culture, but that you know you are beautiful and and powerful and and so that's kind of why I I, I was drawn to the bluest eye. Just that really you know sentiment in the book. Mm. Uh, that's a, that's such a wonderful sentiment, Pear. I'm glad you called uh, and shared that with us here on the show. Okay, David Osborne, Director of Production at the Michigan Opera Theater, and Suzanne Acton, Assistant Music Director and Course Master at the Michigan Opera Theater. It's great to have you guys with us to talk about uh, this wonderful event that took place in Detroit uh, 15 years ago. Thank, thank you so much. Yeah.
Okay, up next, we're going to talk about this year's Jazz Fest and a fact you might not know that performances at the festival have been recorded and archived for years. We're going to talk with the president of the Jazz Fest about why that's significant. Stay with us on Detroit Today.